This morning's text will be out of Matthew 9, uh, verses 18 through 34. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But the crowd had been but when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and said to Jesus, And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Before we, uh, before we go into our time, I just want to... Uh, just want to I guess reorient us to one central truth, which I think uh, if you spend any time here at Remedy, you you kind of know about us. But uh, we deeply love the Word and we hold it in, in in really really high regard. And so these weeks, as we come here and and look at His Word, look at the Word of God, these aren't weeks where we kind of. Uh, what I don't want you to think is this is a time where we kind of look at it and all that kind of stuff, and then we go on and whatever. Um, but this particular 40 minutes of our week, and really as you interact with the Word each night or each day or whenever time you read, these are times when the Holy Spirit uh, takes what we're reading and speaks to us. We speak to God in prayer, but He speaks to us through His Word. And so uh, we hold the Word in really high regard here because it says, the Word, that it does some pretty amazing things for us in our lives. It leads us to righteous. It trains us um, to be more holy. It convicts us of our sin there's a lot of things that it does and so this time i I, i'm asking as you come to it and and really for myself as well that as we come to it today that we would ask god to demonstrate to us his authority which he will which he does in his word all the time not because of me at all Uh, and when he does that what we're going to see as we go into our our time today uh, in chapter 9 verse 18 we're going to see what happens in the lives of two people when they come face to face with this authority? That they either realize their desperation or they don't, and then they exercise this desperation and trust or they don't. And so what I'm wanting for you to pray and for me to pray right now is that we would ask God to make us have that heart condition where we see our absolute need 
for his word today and that he would come now and teach us and train us and show us Jesus, our only hope. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll go into our time. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and the prayer of all of our hearts right now is that we are absolutely dependent upon it. And so I pray that right now you would come and reveal into our lives that truth, that if we don't find ourselves absolutely dependent upon it, that you would show us just how dependent we are for your word. And Lord, as we look at a story here of some people that are interacting with you and your authority has been shown and hopefully it's been shown to us, that we would exercise trust in you for whatever circumstances going on in our life, whether times are great or we're finding ourselves in really remarkably difficult times, that we would trust you. We would exercise trust. That that's what you're wanting from us. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, each week I feel this, this utter need to... <laughs> Um, get us all organized. I know it's a little bit of my OCD personality, but I always feel like we've got to get all organized because no one knows where we are. And I know you actually probably all know where we are, but I feel this need to do it anyway. So let's get organized. Let's get ourselves in a row. And then we'll go into uh, where Kevin read for us at 918. But before we jump into 918, I just feel this need to kind of jump back a, a little bit and bring us up to 918 so we can all know what's going on. And I'm going to do this really fast. Lord willing. So in chapters 5 through 7, that was the Sermon on the Mount. That's where the authority of Jesus was established by Matthew through this teaching. And we see time and time again, no one talks like this. And so if that's the case, then people are saying, the guy that's saying this must have some unbelievable authority. So Matthew establishes authority of Jesus in in the way he teaches. And then right after 5 through 7, which is where we've been in, and this 8 and 9 is kind of served for us as one central unit, which is the authority of Jesus. And it was shown to us by his teaching. And now the authority of Jesus in chapters 8 and 9 is being shown to us um, through healings. And we've seen a... Uh, progressive building of the nature of these healings to where it kind of pinnacled at chapter 9 uh, where he forgives sins, which is something only God can do. And let me just show you that really fast through 8. We see that he heals a leper, and then we see that he heals someone who's paralyzed, who is a uh, servant of <clears throat> a centurion, and then we see that he heals a mother-in-law, um, and then he heals many people, and then we see that people start getting called to him. Now, we can't call people to follow us or else it's a little bit crazy, but only God can. And so we, now we see that he's um, showing his authority by healings. Now he's showing his authority by looking at people and saying, hey, you need to follow me. I'm so, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior of the world. You should follow me. And so this progressive nature that's being shown to us of the authority of Jesus is building throughout Matthew. And then we see he calms a storm. He's showing and flexing his um, authority over the created realm. Things that can be seen. And then, right after that, he heals two demon-possessed men. And so, now he's showing his authority over the unseen, over the supernatural world. And all that goes right into nine, where someone who's paralyzed is set before him. And we're all thinking, he's going to look at him, and he's going to heal him, and he's going to get up. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he looks at the guy that's paralyzed, and does something that blows her mind. 
Only God can do this. Before he heals him, he looks at him and says, my son, your sins are forgiven. So that's, that's amazing. I mean, that's flexing the authoritative nature that only God can have. Only God can have. And then he's calling Matthew. As we see into chapter 9, he starts, um, Matthew starts showing us not only does he have authority, like it's shown us in chapter 8, but this authority has given him a mission. And we saw that at the first half of 9, where when he, when he heals this guy that's paralyzed, he, after he heals him, uh, after he, I'm sorry, after he forgives a sin, then he heals him. We see that Christ, that paralyzed person, is characteristic of us. And then since that's us, the, the vast nature from when he went laying there completely motionless physically to getting up and moving is spiritually what's happened to us. That we were dead in our sin and now we've been transformed and been made alive in Christ. And so that's, that's what's demonstrated. And so the mission that was shown to us is that God has a mission to forgive sin and transform sinners, which flowed right there into Matthew 9, 9, where he calls Matthew, which means God has a mission now to call people in to join his mission, to go call other people to join his mission so that they'll go call other people to join his mission, on and on. And then lastly, we see he has a mission to bring about his coming kingdom, which brings us into 9.18. So note, what we've seen so far is that Jesus has authority. And not only does he have authority, but he has a mission. Now, We've been brought up to the line here, as you, as you were, and there's a line that's being crossed by Matthew in the sand, or being drawn in the sand, and he's like, all that has been shown to you. Now it's your turn. What are you going to do? Are you going to say, yes, you have completely demonstrated to me that you are someone who has authority, that has a mission, I can trust you, and I'm going to follow. Or are you going to say, hmm, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust him right now. Do you have trust issues? Um, I've got trust issues with one particular pizza company here in the, in the city. Um, this is kind of a side note, but one time I got a pizza, and after we ate a couple slices, underneath one of them was a dead fly. And so every time like we get the pizza for them, I'm always looking under it. I've got trust issues with the pizza company um, because I feel like they're going to give me more dead fly pizza. Um, but the point is this. Um, that happened because of an experience. Like an experience created that. They're like, yeah, that's disgusting. Yes, we still ate the pizza. We just brushed off that one part. Um, anyway, um, we gave it to the kids. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> it was theirs. Anyway, uh, so here's the deal. Um, the authority of Jesus has been shown to us. Now, here's the thing about the authority of Jesus. Um, this is from D.A. Carson. Kind of asking ourselves, can we trust him? Is Jesus someone that we can trust? This authority that he's risen to, that he has demonstrated, was not gained um, by doing things that are wrong. This is what D.A. Carson says. With Jesus, you will see no sacrifice of integrity on the altar of victory. So, for him to be totally trustworthy... He has gotten there by maintaining his integrity the entire time. In other words, he's God. He's perfect. He is fully trustworthy. Fully trustworthy. So what we're going to see here, um, and I'm just going to, there's the, this, the big picture is the trustworthiness of Jesus. And what we're going to see in verses 18 through 34 is <clears throat> the authoritative demonstrations of trustworthiness. I know that's kind of a wordy title. It was much wordier than that, actually, and I condensed it to four words, but the authoritative demonstrations of trustworthiness. Authoritative of Jesus, he's going to demonstrate 
that authority and those demonstrations are going to highlight or illustrate for us just how trustworthy he is. And we're going to see those demonstrations of trustworthiness in verses 18 through 34. Matthew's painting a picture for us with words, wanting us to make sure we see that. So what I want to do here is um, I'm going to do two of them. Kevin read today 18 through 34. Uh, We will only go to 26 today. So this is part one of a two-part sermon. We'll do the second part next week. Um, and what I want you to see with point one is actually it's, it's the big picture of his trustworthiness. There's a big picture which is actually demonstrated to us in this entire section of 18 through 34. So let me, let me try to show you this big picture demonstration of his trustworthiness if I can. Um, last service just kind of stared at me blankly, so I'm not really good at explaining this, I don't think. <laughs> so here's the deal. John the Baptist... We saw in Matthew chapter 3 um, was the person that was calling people to repentance. And as he was calling people to repentance, uh, Jesus came and he baptized Jesus. And then they kind of separated. And we saw last week this interaction of the John the Baptist disciples who were saying, Hey, we're ascetic. We're the ones who, you know, keep ourselves from doing all these things. eating lots of food. We fast on all this stuff, but you, disciples of Jesus, the ones that follow him, you don't do this. We follow John. And so... Um, Jesus had to correct them and say, hey, I'm the bridegroom. The bridegroom's here. It's time, to, it's time to celebrate whenever the husband's here. Whenever I'm gone, that's when you'll fast. So that we can see from that, uh, something that's implicit in the text is that there's still kind of two groups operating. There's the Jesus and his followers group and the John the Baptist and his followers. And, and in essence, they're all following the same God. Uh, same God. But <clears throat> John the Baptist still isn't quite sure 100%. And I'm going to show you that to you. Let's look at... Matthew 11. Uh, Run over there to Matthew 11. It's just a page or so over. Look at this. John's in prison, and he wants to know if Jesus is who he says he is. Look at this. Um, Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So, John the Baptist knew the Messiah was supposed to be coming. He's pretty sure it's Jesus. But he wants to know for sure. This is great hope for us in our moments of, of wondering. I mean, he had Jesus. He baptized him. He's wondering. So um, anyway. All right. So are you the one who's to come? In verse 4, look what it says. Jesus answered these disciples and says, I want you to go back and tell John the Baptist this. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. Now, what is it that they've heard and seen? Remember what we've seen over 8 and 9. We've seen lots of healings. Lots of healings. And now Jesus is going to list out those things. Um, Look what he says. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. All right, let's stop right there. What we're going to see today is this. Or what we're going to see today and next week is this. We're going to see someone get raised from the dead. We're going to see a woman who's going to be healed with an issue of blood. And then in, in the following rest of chapter 9, we're going to see a blind man who's caused to see, and we're going to see the, a mute man who's been given the right to speak. Uh, he hasn't been able to speak. Now, in this list that Jesus says in Matthew 11, not all those things have happened right now where we are in chapter 9, starting at verse 18. Some of those have happened before, but not all of them have happened yet. We're actually going to see some of them happen. We're going to see um, the blind receive sight. We're going to see... Uh, the dead be raised. We're going to see these things happen as we're moving forward in 918 for the rest of chapter 9. So, 
When I said this is big picture, here's the big picture thing. Let me, let me read Isaiah uh, to you. This, is, this will be on the screen. This is Isaiah 35. This is um, prophetic words of the Messiah and the things that he's going to do whenever he comes. And what Matthew's been trying to painstakingly show the people who are Jewish, who he's, whom he's writing to, is this man, Jesus, is the Messiah. All the prophecies in the Old Testament are about him. And here's another one. Here's another one. So this, this uh, thing that Jesus tells the disciples to go tell JTB, John the Baptist, uh, the thing, this words that he says is very much characteristic of Isaiah 35. They sound synonymous. Look at Isaiah 35. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So we can stop there. So now we can see the answer that Jesus gives in Matthew 11 sounds a lot like Isaiah 35. And the whole point is this. I'm Jesus. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I am the Savior of the world. You can absolutely trust that. And so come back over here to Matthew 9. Here's the, here's the first uh, authoritative demonstration of trustworthiness. And we're going to see it carried out in the rest of Matthew 9, is this. Jesus is trustworthy to accomplish his mission. His mission has been laid out in the prophecies of the Old Testament. And Jesus is actively carrying those things out. He, I mean, he doesn't have to heal these people. He doesn't have to make the lame walk, cleanse the lepers, make the deaf hear, raise the dead. I mean, he's Jesus. He can, he can just say, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah. There it is. But instead, he's doing the things that are told in the Old Testament, fulfilling every single one of those. And so, some of those aren't even done yet. He's going to do them here in the rest of chapter 9. Which makes me think, if he knows that those things aren't done yet, and he's going to do them, that's a trustworthy person. He's carrying out every single part of the mission that was given to him. Down to the smallest detail of looking at a 12-year-old girl, taking her by the hand and saying... Get up. Get up. So he is completely trustworthy. Completely trustworthy. So that's, that's the first big picture thing I want us to see that, that's really characteristic of, over the rest of this chapter 9. 35, chapter, uh, verse 35 in chapter 9 will serve as a, as a turning point into a different kind of commissioning thing, action that's going to happen. And that'll be a, a whole new section for us. But, so the first thing I want us to see is... The big picture, 18 through 34, is that Jesus is trustworthy to accomplish his mission. He is trustworthy to accomplish his mission. So now we're stepping into the narrative in verse 18. Stepping into the narrative. And this is what I want. Um, I want you to begin to ask yourself right now. As I, we're only going to do 18 through 26 today. As I'm stepping into this narrative and looking at this man, Jesus, and his authority has been shown to me and that he has a mission, am I going to say... Because here's the line. Yes, I trust you. Yes. Or are we still going to be apprehensive? Because you can kind of halfway trust him. You can kind of halfway do the line and still kind of be over here and have some stuff that you don't want to give him here. And that's not what we're saying. We're saying all, all the things in your life, whatever it is, can you trust him with your finances? Can you trust him with your dating life? Can you trust him with your spouse can you trust him with your sickness can you trust him with you fill in the blank everything that's happening in your life that's not going the way you want can you trust him and we're going to see what causes 
in verse 18 and following in this particular section for these two people to finally say, I got nothing else, Jesus. I have to follow you. All right, let's look at it. Verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in. So he's saying these things as he's, he's still talking about fasting. He's still talking about fasting. It says um, these things. Behold, a ruler came in. Now this ruler, in this particular section, in verses 18 through 26, I'm going to uh, reach my hands out into Mark and Luke and the, the gospel narratives in Mark and Luke and pull in some details into Matthew because Matthew leaves out some details and that's because he has a particular purpose in which he's writing. He has a particular purpose and he's writing to Jews and he's trying to um, demonstrate this authoritative power and those details aren't necessary to show that. But for the purposes of today and preaching this, I want to reach over into Mark and Luke and grab some details and pull them over into this sermon today. I think they'll serve as our time, they'll serve our time to be a little bit better. So here we see, it says, Behold, a ruler came in. Mark and Luke tell us this guy's name. His name is Jairus. His name is Jairus. And it says, he came in, and we know that he actually, he kind of ran in, and he knelt before him. Now, he knelt before him. What drives a ruler um, to sprint in and fall down and kneel before Jesus? This is a grown man. And in this culture, in this Jewish culture, grown men don't sprint and run. They don't show much, very much emotion. Um, and they, they wouldn't appear to be in hurries at anything. But something's going on in the life of this man that he is very desperate. Very desperate that he is going to break cultural norms in order to sprint and fall down at the feet of Jesus and start saying something. What's going on? Well, we know what's going on. It tells us right there. It says he knelt before him saying, here it is. My daughter has just died. I've got three daughters. And I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine the deep sorrow this man is feeling. That's what causes a grown man to break cultural norms is something has happened in his life that has made him desperate enough to hear about this man Jesus and say, all I have, the only hope I have is to run over to this man Christ, fall down on his knees and in desperation, let him know what's going on and perhaps he'll help me. And so, <laughs> obviously, can we just lift this out and say for yourselves, have you come to this point where you are desperate enough in your sin, you are desperate enough in your circumstances and in your life to break the cultural norms, not care what people think, and run over to the feet of Jesus and say, I've got nowhere else to go but you. I've got nowhere else to go but you. Well, we can take one step back and we can say, um, okay, fun. Is that really what Jesus wants? It seems like what you're saying is, the motivation behind the heart is, <laughs> I've got nowhere else to go. I tried to do everything myself, and then once everything didn't work out, then I came to you, Jesus. Doesn't he just really want us to, before we try to do everything ourselves, in the very beginning, come over to him and say, I just trust you implicitly from the beginning, Jesus. I, right now things are going well, and once things go bad, I'm going to already be here. Isn't that the motivation he really intends? Yes, of course it is. But does that make the desperation of this man coming to him, um, this time of trusting, does it somehow make it invalid? No, not at all. Many times in our lives, desperation 
will be the thing, the catalyst that drives us to trust Jesus. And Jesus is not going to scorn you for finding yourself desperate first before you'll trust him, rather than just trusting him initially. And we certainly don't see that in the text. Jesus doesn't say to this man, well, you should have already been following me. I've been doing stuff around this city already. What the world? You're coming to me now? No. And I think that's a great lesson for us, that um, when circumstances are terrible and we're desperate, we must exercise trust. And we know that just because we're coming to Jesus now, He's not going to scorn you. As a matter of fact, um, he's far more kind and compassionate than you think. He came to him and he said, she's just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she'll live. Now this uh, certainly has comparative overtones to the healing of the centurion, which is an 8-5 and following, where the centurion comes on behalf of somebody else and asking Jesus. But the centurion is like, all you got to do is say the word. So there's some, there's some differences as well, uh, for sure. But here, he's coming on behalf of his daughter, desperate for Jesus to do something. And so where I'm driving the entire time is, I want you to exercise trust in Jesus. And so I think what Matthew's trying to drive us with this and in the, in the, the interruption narrative of 20-22 is, he's wanting you to feel the angst of desperation first. That's what's going to finally drive you to start trusting him with everything. Not just the simple things, but all these kind of things you keep behind. You're not feeling desperate enough to say, you're all I've got right now. And so I'm wanting us to feel this desperation. And he's doing it right now with Jairus. But we're going to see um, with Jairus and his desperation how it kind of contrasts with this other lady. But we see... Anyway, back over to 19. And it says, This man comes, breaking all cultural norms, running up to Jesus. He's only desperate. That's why he finally wants Jesus. And he asks him, Will you help me? Does Jesus say, No way. See you later. Uh Uh-uh. Verse 19. And Jesus rose and followed him. Jesus rose and followed him. And an immediate yes of Jesus, which is implicit in the text, a deep concern for people and a deep care for people. That's Jesus. That's the person that, he, that he's saying, you can trust me. Jesus is saying that, and you can. He has a deep, deep compassion for you. All right. Now, interestingly enough, we kind of stop right there. And, and really, this story picks up in 23. But 20 through 22 is a... Is a interruption in this narrative and all of a sudden we have this lady who who enters the picture and here's the deal matthew has this just like this the interruption mark has the exact same way and luke has the exact same way so is it is it just happenstance is it just some kind of like um holy spirit like forgot this part as he was carrying along the riders and said oh we'll stick this in there and then we'll bring up jairus right after that we'll just stick that in there for no reason whatsoever i don't think that's the case at all there's there's a reason why this particular text is stuck right down in the middle of Jairus' daughter. And then we pick up Jairus' daughter in 23. And so we need to look at 20 through 22 and see what's the point of 20 through 22 being stuck right in there. And then we'll pick up Jairus' daughter after that. Um, <clears throat> it's not just kind of happenstance. The Holy Spirit intended it. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all are, are doing this. So let's look at this story. 20. Behold, a woman who had suffered... From a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, this discharge of blood, most likely, uh, all commentators are pretty, pretty straightforward on, on saying that this is most likely um, menstrual. Um, and it happened for about 12 years. And so, after 12 years, she was certainly anemic, just 
um, very weak, uh, wasn't, wasn't doing too well. Now, interestingly enough, we see this in 20. And then we're going to have to grab those details from Mark and Luke and bring them over so we can start seeing, Holy Spirit, what are you doing here telling us this story right here? It says that this woman who suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, if we pull over the other narrative, we know that when it says that Jairus runs up and says, I have a daughter that has just died. She is 12 years old. The exact same amount of time that this girl has lived is the exact same amount of time that this woman has experienced this issue of blood. I don't think this is coincidence. Um, and then it says, <clears throat> she came up for, she had this for 12 years and she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Touched the fringe of his garment. This fringe is uh, not like, you know, like little strings that hang off, like some kind of cool set of skinny jeans that Jesus has or something. But this is like a robe that he had, and it's an important part of his robe. And she comes up, and this, this touch is more of a grab. It's more of like a, 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 a very much intentional kind of grab. And what we see here, which is not in this narrative, because it looks like that after she touches it, then Jesus looks at her, and he says something to her, and then she's healed. But we know um, from Mark and Luke that as soon as she touches the, the fringe of his garment, she's automatically healed. Just like that. And then some other things happen. But as soon as she touches it, she's healed. So let's, let's uh, do a little bit of comparison and contrast before we keep going. Just so we can see what the Holy Spirit is doing here by putting this woman uh, who doesn't have a name, who seems pretty insignificant. Mark and Luke don't give her a name as well, but Mark and Luke del- do tell us Jairus' name. And what is it that's going on here? All right, here's the thing. Um, in contrast to Jairus, everyone knows him. And this woman's not given a name at all. Uh, in, in, in other words, in everyone's eyes, this uh, Jairus guy seems to be a pretty significant person. This lady seems to be pretty insignificant. Um, he's got a daughter that's 12 years old and is sick. She's been sick for 12 years. He's the ruler of the synagogue. She's not even allowed in the synagogue. Whenever you have a discharge of blood for 12 years, there's actually Levitical law that's been written that require um, an isolation of these kinds of women that were, uh, that were having this kind of issue. There's laws written. They weren't allowed to sit certain places. They certainly weren't allowed to be touched. Uh, more than likely, she's missed out on children. She's probably not married if she was. There's all kinds of like isolation things that are being shown to us that she is very much on the outskirts now. She is a, a no one, a no one at all. Like she is the bottom rung of, of society. And then you've got this ruler, Jairus. The, everybody knows And so what's being demonstrated to us is whether you are someone that's extremely significant or someone that's seemingly in this world insignificant, what's similar between both of them is a desperation. They are desperate. And they are trusting Jesus with everything they have. I've got nothing, Jesus. You are my only hope. Luke, the doctor, has shown to us. He's a doctor and he says that this woman was incurable. She'd spent all of her money trying to get cured. She was incurable. She was isolated and she was desperate because she had this discharge of blood. And she thought to herself in 21, if I touch the fringe of his garment, I'll be made well. If I touch the fringe of his garment, I'll be made well. Let me just kind of, um, let me just say it this way. There's an intentionality in her life about being with and around Jesus. A very um, 
admirable intentionality. And for some of us, we can kind of come into church, play church, do things. Maybe you're in a community group, maybe you're not. You're kind of in and out of being serious with Jesus, depending upon uh, if you've got the right girlfriend or boyfriend right now, or if you've got your marriage going really fine right now, your kids are finally being behaved, whatever. There's, there's this kind of, I'm really with Jesus now because everything's fine. And this is just a, a casual um, interaction with Jesus. And this is not at all what he's wanting. He's wanting trust. He's wanting intentional trust. Lots of people will come and, and touch Jesus casually, this, this casual interaction with Jesus. Few people intentionally trust him and intentionally stay there in touch. Air, air quote, touch. They live their life for him with everything they have. This is what is being called for by this. And she's thinking, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. She's desperate. And she does go up and touch him. She does go up and touch him. And what I want us to see here, um, we're going to have to grab the other text, and we know that as soon as she touches his garment, it says that she's made clean. Now, um, this has lots of overtones from 8.2, and I talked about this whenever Jesus touched the leper in 8.2, in 8.2 and following, but this is what happens. And this this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. She's ceremonially unclean. So she's not even supposed to be in the crowd. Like she's, she's walking around more than likely, you know, brushing up elbows with people. All, she sees Jesus. She's thinking, if I just touch that garment, I'm going to be healed. And so she's trying, to, she's trying to get through there. And as soon as she grabs it, Jesus stops and he says, someone just touched me. I felt power go out of me. Now, who touched me? Now, you and I know, I mean, obviously, the sovereign God of the universe is not standing there befuddled on who touched him. If you're a parent, you know exactly, like, you can walk into the room and see mayhem, and you see your kids, and you can say, all right, um, you look innocent, you look, I know it was you. You're the one, and say, all right, who's the one that did this? And then you're just waiting for them to, to make public their confession. I mean, this, if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is, this is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's asking who, ta- who touched me so that he's giving her a chance to now own it. I'm the one that touched you. I'm making it public. And so this is what's going on um, whenever it says that she touches him. But what I want us to see here is a very gospel-centered message. Because since she was ceremonially unclean, since she was ceremonially unclean, anything she touches is supposed to be now unclean. But that's not what happens at all. What happens is amazingly gospel-centered. The unclean touches the clean. And instead of the unclean making the clean unclean, Jesus, who is clean, whenever he, she touches him, he makes her clean. The opposite of what we think happens. That is at the heart, the gospel, where he on the cross took all of our defilement. On the cross, he took our sin and our sorrow. He took our condemnation on him and all of his healing, all of his perfection, all of his salvation flows out to us and we are now the recipients of righteousness. He gives us um Purity, he cleanses us and he takes on our defilement. That's what happens on the cross. And so she did touch him and it's very gospel-centered in the way it happens is that she becomes the one unclean. And let me just point out the obvious. Only God can do that. More authority established for him. More reason for you and for me to trust him. 
with whatever's going on. Only God can do that. Every reason to trust Him. And then, all that happens, and so he has this little interaction. Who touched me? And she says it was me. And then verse 22. Um, I want to read the first half, and, and I want to build the drama. Because I know you know what happens, but let's act like we don't know the response. Let's act like you haven't read the red letters there in verse 22. And let's, let's just read the black letters and stop and build the drama. All right? It says this. Jesus, she, she went up to him and she touched him. She feels better, but she knows all that was kind of like taboo, not supposed to be there, all that kind of stuff. Jesus turns to her and seeing her, he said, stop, put yourself in the place of the woman and let this drama start building. And you're thinking to yourself, all right, if I'm the woman, there's an inward tension right now. He's facing me. Words are about to come out of his mouth and I'm getting a little fearful. I'm getting scared because I have no idea right now really what he's about to say. Um, I'm wondering if he's going to reject me too like the other men that have the last 12 years. I'm wondering if he's going to publicly shame me probably like all the other people have done over the last 12 years. Is he angry that I've touched him and probably made him unclean? Is he angry that I'm here in the crowd like bumping shoulders and making them all unclean? Is he going to take me and cast me out of here where I'm supposed to be? I'm unclean. I'm filthy. I'm defiled. What's he going to do? He's looking at me. Here it is. Here's the moment. And look what happens. I mean, this is, this is just so remarkably beautiful. He is so good. He is so kind. He is so compassionate. This is one thing that I've, I've wanted us to see over the entire time we studied these very familiar stories is that as you see this outpouring of love that Jesus has towards outcast, you would not just say, that's how I need to be, but you would say, wow, I love him so much for being so kind. Look what he says. He looks at her and he says, Take heart, daughter. There's a load, a load of things in that. Let's try to look at them. First is, he looks at her and he says, Take heart. The moment's swelling. What's he going to say? And he looks at her and he says, Take heart. All of a sudden, all the angst, all the fear just... can trust him this was right he told me take heart so he shows his deep love and care for her and then he looks at her and he says daughter he calls her daughter now i pointed out in chapter 9 uh, verse uh, 2 Chapter 9, verse 2, when the paralytic was brought, he looks at this man and he says, Take heart, my son. And I said, this man was very similar in age to Jesus, and yet Jesus is calling him son. That's exercising some, some pretty major authority to call someone son your same age. And here's the same thing right here. He looks at her and he calls her daughter. So in one thing that's being shown in the word daughter is he's calling someone his same age daughter. But and so that's showing his authority. But there's a second side of calling her, authority, uh, calling her daughter that's not necessarily um, highlighting authority, but highlighting compassion. And I, this is what I really want to point out. He calls her daughter, showing his authority, but also using a term of endearment. This is, in the Gospels, um, the only person that Jesus refers to by that name. This is the only time he looks at someone and he calls them daughter. Take heart, daughter. 
daughter is one of the most intimate and tender relationships that someone can have, a father with a daughter. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to have someone that you, you care for so much and that you're so tenderhearted and protective. The girl that nobody wanted, the girl that nobody wanted, is now being adopted by the ultimate father, the God of the universe. The girl that no one in touched is embraced by the strongest and most tender arms in the universe. And now we can start really highlighting again the contrast with Jairus, where Jairus is a dad who comes pleading the case for his own daughter before Jesus, but this woman has no father, and so Jesus is going to be her father, and he calls her daughter. He's the father to the fatherless, and he calls her daughter. Beautiful compassion. Just beautiful compassion. So this drama builds up, and he looks at her in the most kind, compassionate way and says, take heart, daughter. And then says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. In the theological and all that we won't get to, but he heals her and her faith has made her well. And it says, and instantly, instantly, the woman was made well. At that hour, right then, she's made well. So that's just unbelievable authority of Christ. And being instant, another demonstration for you and for me, (laughs) I can trust him. I can trust him. So are you... On the spectrum of wherever you are, from Jairus all the way down to the most outcast like this lady, are you finding yourself feeling desperate for the things that are going on into your lives, recognizing that I've got this big truckload of junk going on that no one knows about, or maybe people do know about, that I've been apprehensive to give to you. I've given you some, but not all of it. Are you willing to, just like them, feel the desperation where you have to come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I've tried too long. I've got nowhere else to go. I'm coming and I'm laying it all at your feet and I'm desperate for you, God, to heal me. I completely trust you. I completely trust you. And that's where we're driving, is that God wants you to exercise trust. All of his authority has been demonstrated to you over the last couple of chapters. And he's saying, come and trust me. Now we jump back over to this original story in verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, that's Jairus' house, and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, um, that means that the funeral is getting underway. Mark and Luke tell us that right after he had this interaction with the woman with the issue of blood, someone came to Jesus and said, Jesus, um, the girl has died. She's dead. And it says that Jesus still went to the ruler's house anyway. He went to the ruler's house anyway because he's got a, a dead body to raise. He's keeping his mission, which we've seen already has been promised to us in Matthew 11, Isaiah. All right, so he goes to the ruler's house. The flute players and, and the crowd is going, uh, making this commotion. And he looks at him and he says, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. The girl is not dead, but sleeping. Tim Keller asks a question about this, this statement. Go away, the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And he says, Doesn't this just seem pretty, you know, not very compassionate to look at people and say, Oh, she's not dead. She's sleeping. If, if you had a 12-year-old daughter and I came into the funeral and I said, um, Hey, don't worry about it. She's not dead. She's sleeping. Um, wouldn't you feel like, I'm going to take your head off. Are you kidding me? That's the most insensitive thing you could ever say to me right now. And he asked this question. He says, Doesn't it seem so insensitive for Jesus to walk up there and say, This girl's not dead. She's sleeping. Well, this is beautiful. 
Um, this, is, this is just beautiful. For those who are in Christ, for those who are in Christ, this is absolutely true. Death, death has no hand over you. Death itself is nothing but just sleep to finally awake to be with Christ. Let me, let me read what he says. Um, he says this. <clears throat> now, we're going to have to use Mark and Luke because we don't see what Jesus says. It says he goes to this girl and he, uh, he takes her by the hand. But this is what Tim Keller says. Remember, Jesus sits down beside the girl, takes her by the hand, and he says two things to this girl, which isn't in Matthew, but it's in Mark and Luke. I invite you to go over there later. Not now. Um, the first thing is Talitha. Literally, it means little girl. But that does not get across the sense of what he's saying. This is a pet name, a diminutive term of endearment. Um, since this is a diminutive term that a mother would use to a little girl, probably the best tra- translation is he look at her and he says, Honey. So he takes her by the hand and he says, Honey. And then right after that, he says one other thing. The second thing Jesus says to her is, Kum, which means arise. It's not be resurrected. It just means get up. It just means get up. So Jesus is doing exactly what this child's parents might do on a sunny morning. He sits down beside her. He takes her hand and he says, Honey, it's time to get up. And she does. And then he says this. Jesus is facing the most, and these are hard words, implacable and oryxable, and if, I don't know what that word is. If I was writing, I would have used a different word. Um, enemy of the human race. And such is his power that he holds this child by the hand and gently lifts her right up through it and says, Honey, get up. Honey, get up. Jesus is saying by his actions, If, you have, <clears throat> if I have you by the hand, death itself is nothing but sleep. Death itself is nothing but sleep. So it's not at all when he says, she's, she's not dead, but she's sleeping. It's not at all insensitive. As a matter of fact, theologically, it is the, one of the most correct things that we can say. For those who are in Christ, for those who are in Christ, this is ultimately true. Death has no hold on us. When we die, we are going to be with the king. Now, he, tell, he tells them that, and it says, and they laughed at him. They laughed at him. Now, um... You would laugh, obviously, if someone said that, or you would feel um, very upset. Uh, this, this laughing that they feel is not, I don't think, disrespectful to them. I think it's just a complete, um, they're just not completely acquainted with who Jesus is. And so when he says that, they just think, you're crazy. I'm going to laugh at that. And there might even be a bit of scorn in their laughter at him, um, a, little, a little anger at someone that said that because they're saying, we're talking about a 12-year-old daughter. Girl, how can you say this? Probably not received very well. So everybody leaves the room. He tells them all to get out, and they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, because he told them to go outside, he went in, he took her by the hand, and we know that he says, Talitha kum, honey, it's time to get up. And she does get up, and the girl arose. And then, verse 26, it says, And the report of this went all throughout that district. All throughout that district. And so what we've seen here is the trustworthiness of Jesus. Um, being demonstrated to us because of the desperation of a father and of a woman who has this issue of blood. And so what I want to do here is conclude with about four things that are just kind of being um, shown to us here in this text. And ask you, now that over the last several weeks, if you've been with us and you've seen the authority of Jesus be established through these healings, through calling people, through calling storms and through... Uh, healing demon-possessed men. All this authority has been demonstrated. And then even forgiving the sins of people. 
And here's the line, and he's saying, now that all this authority has been shown to you, are you ready to say, yes, Jesus, I trust you. Yes, I trust you. Here's, here's four conclusions I want to bring out. The first thing is, will you come? Will you come? Will you be like Jairus, and will you be like this woman? Will you say, I've got nowhere else to go. It is desperation that I'm coming to you. But the thing about Jairus and and this woman is they actually get up and they come to him. They don't stand by and just wait and pray that things are going to finally get better. And maybe one day they actually come to Jesus. So the first thing is, in your troubles right now, in the parts where that you don't want to give over to Christ, are you willing to say, I have to, I trust you, there is no one else I can go to besides you because you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, I trust you enough that I'm going to actually come to you with my life. Will you come? The second thing is this. I want to highlight for you, for those of you that will say, yes, I'm going to come, notice the compassionate nature of Jesus. He doesn't scorn them. When Jairus comes, he doesn't say, I can't believe you're here. Absolutely, let's go. When the woman comes, he calls her daughter and tells her to take heart. You need to know that, and I know, it's a big deal for you to say, Okay, I'm coming. I, that's a hard step, but I don't know that I can actually say all this stuff, yes. But I want you to notice, I know it's a big step. And don't miss that Jesus is more compassionate than you can ever imagine. He's more merciful than you can comprehend. When you come, you'll never say, oh, I can't believe I did that, I regret that. You'll only say, I'm so happy I did it, I can't believe I waited this long. Will you come? Will you see that he's compassionate? The next thing is, will you know him rightly? What you think about God determines how you relate with him. These people operated with a a deep knowledge of really who Jesus was. They were sure of his compassion. They had a right view of him. She believed that he was a compassionate, a compassionate person. So in her ultimate weakness, she, come, she comes to him and says, I need you. And he had compassion for her. As a matter of fact, more than she could ever realize. He didn't want to just heal her body for this issue of blood, but he also wanted to call her his daughter. Far more than she thought. She just wanted to be healed. And she got adopted by the Father. This is... This is the God who's calling you to trust Him. This is the God who's calling you to trust Him. More than you could imagine. More than you could imagine. That's what He's capable of. He's so trustworthy. And the fourth thing I want you to see is this. This report went through all, all throughout the district. It went all throughout the district. And so, if you're a believer... I want your transformed life. Jesus wants your transformed life, more importantly, to go all throughout your district. He wants the report of what God has done in your life to be told over and over and over to people. Let me show you the second thing. I don't think I ever showed it to you. Here's the second thing. Jesus is trustworthy when you're isolated and desperate. 
He's trustworthy when you're isolated and desperate. This woman was isolated. She was desperate. Jairus was desperate. He absolutely had nowhere else to go. And if that's you right now, <coughs> and maybe you've just become aware of this right now, like in the service. Like, I thought I was good, Fudd, and now you tell me I'm not, and I'm probably not, and I've thought about it, and I do have a bunch of stuff. Like, yeah, I am desperate. Like, wh- wherever you are right now, um, he is trustworthy. He is absolutely trustworthy. And he's saying, come right now. You must come right now. I'm more compassionate than you can ever know. I want you to know me rightly. And I want you to be transformed and then go be sent out in your district to report about what Christ has done. So as we go into our time of response, if the God of the universe that created all things, who is the Savior of the world, who has written this word, has spoken to you, He's spoken to you, not me. I haven't said anything. If God has spoken to you, and that's what we believe whenever we read His Word, that He speaks, not us. If He's spoken to you, I can't imagine that responding to that should last 15 to 20 seconds. I can't imagine that it's just like, oh yeah, okay, good things to think about. What's for lunch? If He has spoken to us in His Word, the only thing I can think is, that should call for us to have some time of contemplation, some time of response, some time of thinking, some time of prayer, some time of repentance. And so that's what we, that's what we build into this next set of worship. We have multiple songs because we want you to let the Holy Spirit lead you. And maybe you need to take the entire time to think and pray and repent and read and confess and trust and exercise these things. Maybe it's just going to take a short amount of time and you just need to stand and worship your glorious king because you have been called a daughter. You have been called a son of the Messiah. And all you can do is sing to him and worship. Whatever. However the Holy Spirit's leading. Use this time. Because the God of the universe has just spoken to you through his word. That gives us reason to think and pause and reflect I'm going to pray and however he leads right now just just be obedient to that let's pray Lord we are desperate people and this is not something that we're completely aware of all the time and sometimes it's just in small measure that we realize how desperate we are But in these moments, would you grant to us, would you be kind enough to grant to us an understanding of the vastness of our need for you, the vastness of our desperation for you? Because in this moment where she faced the king of the universe, the most obvious, greatest reality was shown to her in that particular moment as she faced him she realized the depth of how different she was. All of her defilement and guilt was exposed before a holy God. And would you grant that to us in these moments? Help us see just how dreadfully needy we are, but don't leave us there. Bring around our knowledge of the gospel that on the cross you took on all of that for us and gave to us, imputed to us 
all of your righteousness. And let that wash over our soul and create in us a deep joy for you. And let these, this time of response be a sweet time of thought and contemplation and worship as we think on just the beauty of the gospel in our life, the beauty of knowing Jesus, the beauty of being forgiven for all of our sin. Holy Spirit, however you're leading right now for us to respond, would we be obedient? Grant that to us. In Jesus' name.